Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, July 18th, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. You've heard it all before. Scientists accused of being bad communicators. Well, Kent Kirschenbaum is no such scientist. He studies polymers at New York University. To help the average person grasp his ideas, he started a program called the Experimental Cuisine Collective. Food, you see, has a lot to do with polymers. And food, obviously, has a lot to do with the average person. This week, hear how Kent and his collaborators have made the collective a success. I caught up with them after their latest meeting on stretchy ice cream. Love Science in the City podcasts? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org. There is something about the aging of this material. There's something about the processing that's really crucial in perhaps aligning the polymer chains. We don't really understand yet exactly... I really got started on this through the urging of the National Science Foundation. I applied for a career grant, and an important component of that grant process is demonstrating a program in science outreach. I'm Kent Kirschenbaum. I am a professor in the Department of Chemistry at New York University, and I am one of the co-founders of the Experimental Cuisine Collective. When I'm not doing science outreach with the collective, I run a research lab devoted to bioorganic chemistry, interested in drug design. And I also teach at the graduate and undergraduate level. I run courses in bioorganic chemistry, sophomore organic chemistry, and graduate biochemistry. When I went to revise my grant, I was asked to put together a component that was more imaginative about science outreach in the area of polymer chemistry, which is a lot of what we do. So I said, if you want imaginative, I'll give you something imaginative. And I realized that we could really engage the public very broadly in the area of polymers as applied to food. And I very quickly realized that there were chefs, there were scientists who were working in the interface between science and cooking, developing science outreach programs, but that all that work was essentially going on in Europe. And there wasn't anything here in the United States devoted to that. So I contacted a chef who had been contributing in this avant-garde type of cuisine. His name's Will Goldfarb. He operated a dessert restaurant here in lower Manhattan and asked him if he would contribute to the process, and he agreed. And we also contacted a professor here in the the School of Education in the uh, Food Studies Department. Her name is Amy Bentley, and she also agreed to, to help participate. So the three of us then got together and began to articulate some of the projects that we could work on. We've now been operating for about a year and running discussion groups and beginning to do some research and a lot of different so, types of science. I think, I think Ariel's been getting a really good workout. Yeah, my arms are like so... 
<laughs> a little bit later that fall, after Kent, Amy, and Will uh, got started together, and once the grant was approved, I think, or got involved around the grant proposal stage, when we decided to have a launch event, and Amy knew that I was interested in all these things, so she asked me to come on board to help coordinate just pretty much basically early on and then I was very fortunate that Amy and Kent and Will delegated a lot of things to me so that's how my role grew a little bit. I'm Anne McBride, I'm the director of the Experimental Cuisine Collective and I take care of the day-to-day affairs of the collective. I'm a PhD student in the food studies department here at NYU and I'm a freelance food writer. I learn from the meetings themselves, I learn from the interaction with the people who are attending there's always a really great energy. So the meeting we just had is really the perfect model of a, for a meeting where there's science, there's food, it's explained clearly, but people learn something. There's a real enthusiasm. There's a practical application. There is a cultural context, you know, with dealing with a, an ice cream that's a traditional product of Turkey that has... Uh, environmental issues in a sense of the you know this orchid that is endangered etc etc it's really sort of the perfect mixture of food science culture etc etc that we're um, we want to work towards so um, that in terms of model this is definitely what i think we should be aiming for as we go forward so uh, we're, we're really um, have been spending a lot of our time making sure we get something that feels right and, and tastes right, too. And now that, that we've done that, we really want to do more work to understand its physical chemical attributes. There's a lot of uh, um, instrumentation, analytical chemistry a polymer is a long-chain molecule that's composed of many small individual units, all linked one to the other to make a very long chain. You can think of it as individual cars of a railroad train all coming together to make a very long chain that functions well as a whole. And there are many important polymer molecules, both in synthetic chemistry, all types of different plastics, but there are also a whole lot of really important polymer chain molecules that exist in biological systems. DNA is a polymer molecule. Proteins are polymer molecules. And as a result, when I began to think about, well, how am I going to get individual people who don't normally think about molecules excited about polymers, it wasn't going to be by talking to them about polyurethane. It wasn't going to be talking to them about you know, non-stick surfaces or just general bulk polymers. I realized that I could really get people to pay attention by talking about the types of interesting polymer molecules that were in their food. What exactly happens when you scramble and cook an egg? You know, what is going on at the level of the individual molecules when when you do that? What would it mean to uncook an egg? You know, how could you think about doing that? That these are questions that on the one hand are really complex and rich from a scientific level and on the other hand, are so immediate for people to grasp because people deal with cooking eggs every day. Hi, my name's Will Goldfarb. You're joining me here at Picnic in the Battery Bosque, part of the Battery Conservancy's downtown renovation project here on the water, watching the streams and streams of tourists coming from Ellis Island to eat our sandwiches at Picnic. I was approached by Kent 
when I was working at um, Room for Dessert. I think I was probably cleaning the door arch or something. And Kent came in and was talking about doing a program with the university, trickling down to the schools, and I just said, this is exactly what I'm looking for, so whatever we can do, let's do it. We got together, we were able to organize a really great opening ceremony. I had Hervé Thies come over from France, and we had Wiley do a speech and discussing what he's doing at WD-50. You know, Florence Fabricant moderated a panel. We really had a great opening last and you know it's we've sort of been able to maintain our momentum since then by having great programming i mean kent and amy and and Anne really making sure we have content and making sure we're still relevant and interesting and our our feedback just gets better and better our lists get better and better and our you know everything it's really it's, it's been really great imagine you have some um children who have high cholesterol levels very uh um might be difficult to get them to take medication, um, getting, getting children to comply with uh, pharmaceutical regimens can be difficult. Imagine, you know, giving kids ice cream to control their cholesterol levels. That would be an aphrodisiac for the adults. Um, I, I told you that it's referred to as fox testicle ice cream. In fact, it has a reputation for enhancing virility. If you think that what goes on in, in your kitchen is simple, you are really mistaken. That a lot of what happens when you make ice cream, for example, is incredibly complex. That if you begin to pay attention to what the components are on the molecular level, what all the different components are on the microscopic level, the fat globules, the ice crystals, how to control ice crystals, it's just amazingly complex which is, on the one hand, daunting, and on the other hand, really gives us a great opportunity to think really deeply about it. Um, and and another thing that I realize is that we can really make a contribution to people who are trying to do simple and interesting things, like make a hard-boiled egg in just the right way, or to cook fish so that they don't have to worry about whether or not it's going to be mushy. And a lot of what is going on now in kitchens has to do with precision and reproducibility. A lot of chefs are becoming really excited about the opportunities to control temperatures very precisely. And I think this is where we can really contribute our background and you know scientific research in a precise and reproducible way about going about doing investigations. And so that's been really interesting to observe as well. Will Powder is a specialty chef ingredient company that was designed to provide small quantities of ingredients for chefs that were looking to learn how to use them and explanation and service to provide answers. There was a gourmet feature last month with a video of making powder out of Nutella. So it's currently one of our big sellers. Well, we make our own Nutella by grinding hazelnut praline, chocolate, and butter. And then we convert that into powder by mixing a tapioca maltodextrin, which is a tapioca-modified starch which absorbs the moisture in the oil. So it turns greasy things into powdery things. Right now, I'm having the best results using VersaWhip, which is a soy-based protein, um, which allows you to make mousses out of juices uh, with a really fine texture like a replacement for 
a traditional gelatin and egg white, so it's able to make vegan-friendly mousses. It's a very varied audience. We have chefs, scientists, students, writers, editors, university professors. And from students, we have everything from high school students to PhD students. So there's really a very wide mixture of experience, of knowledge, of curiosity, of even cooking skills, whatever. I don't know, it really brings a great balance to uh, the type of questions that come up because everyone has a different experience that they bring to the table when they ask questions. It makes for a good discussion. And we are actually more interested in very engaged audiences than in large audiences. We're not really interested in having 300 people attend meetings if no one will ask questions. We'd rather have 30 to 40 people who are really into it, have whatever background, whatever interest. A lot of people come out of the woodwork with interesting questions of background. Like, you know, today there were Turkish people who had experience with that. There's always someone who um, was a chemistry major at some point but dropped out or just all this mixture of people that make for really, really interesting group. With liquid nitrogen. And in fact, we can, I think we can take a much deeper look um, at, at this controversy and realize that, you know, we, we don't have to say, well, are there chemicals in my food? There, there are always chemicals in your food. It's just a matter of what chemicals are present. You definitely don't want to dumb things down. And actually in my grant to the National Science Foundation, I said that my objective was not to sugarcoat chemistry. That's not what we're trying to do. I'm showing people figures, data, right from you know peer-reviewed journal articles. And I think a crucial aspect, just as in good food preparation is not giving people more than they can digest comfortably. You know, hand out bite-sized portions and make sure it's really tasty. I think we're just getting going and trying to figure out how to do this stuff effectively. And every time I give one of these sorts of presentations, I just kick myself for realizing that there's really fundamental things that I just didn't explain. For example, today I was dropping ice cream mix into liquid nitrogen. Well, I never explained to people the fact that liquid nitrogen is really cold. For me, it's just like very obvious. But I need to step back and remember, for a lot of people, they may not know exactly how cold liquid nitrogen really is. It's not our goal to try to convince people one way or another. It's just our goal to ask the question, like, what happens when you heat up a food? What happens on the basic level of a molecule? And that's what we're here to discuss. We really believe that. We believe that it is that discussion that is going to, on the one hand, propel better cooking, and on the other hand, really educate people about what it is that's in that food. I didn't know that people cared so much about it than that people would congregate to a topic like this. It's very much at the fringes, and... The danger in working at the fringe is that you're going to be addressing a very small audience. I really do think that there's a large audience of people who care about these things and we can engage all types of different people. I think it's great that we've generated some buzz. I think it's great that people are paying attention to what we've been able to do. And at the same time, I would be extremely reluctant to say that that is any indication of success. As far as I'm concerned, All it does is demonstrate that we are at a niche that really needs to be filled. And I think, frankly, we've done a really poor job 
in a lot of very important ways. Right now, we are catering to people who are very self-motivated to come and hear what we have to say about these topics. The really crucial step for us is to go out and talk to people who wouldn't, by themselves, come and hear about these things. So I'm, I'm talking here about real outreach, about going into the schools, about talking to people about chemistry who don't have a natural passion for it and getting them engaged. And we just have not even begun to do that yet. And that's where I really want to think about success, whether or not we can do that. Thanks for listening. Love what you hear on Science in the City podcasts? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org and click Join NIAS. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about our show? We'd love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654 or send us a letter snail mail to Science in the City, care of the New York Academy of Sciences, 250 Greenwich Street, 7 World Trade Center, on the 40th floor. New York, New York, 10007. See you next week. <laughs>